Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks. This is Kyle Brost with The Art of Strategic Reaction. Today, we have on Judith Glazier and are really excited to have her and hear about her story. So she has some phenomenal business success, is doing some amazing work in, uh, in what she refers to as conversational intelligence. So we have a lot of alignment between what Judith is doing and what I'm doing, and I'm excited to have this conversation with her. Judith, do you mind giving us a little bit of a background on who you are and what you're up to? Oh, my goodness. Um, How much time do we have for that? 30 seconds? (laughs) (laughs) Take whatever you need. Okay. Um, So I have been in a business that I created almost 40 years ago called Benchmark Communications, Inc. And um, from the very beginning of when I was even young, 11 years old, it started, I got fascinated by the dynamics of conversations and how they impact us energetically and actually shape our future. And it was before epigenetics came in as an explanation for why and what's going on behind the scenes. But conversations became my absolute fixation. And I set up Benchmark to work with companies to help them look at their conversations, explore what's working and what isn't, and actually help them understand how the brain works so that the conversations they choose are conversations that activate great success for them. Does that make sense? It does. It sounds uh, it sounds really, really intriguing. I'm excited to get into some of the details about how that works and, and kind of your course and journey. Mm-hmm. Terrific. So, so how did you get there? I mean, you how did you you said you've been in benchmark communications for 40 years. Mm-hmm. What was the impetus? How did you get to that place? That's such a great question, Kyle. Um, it turns out that I grew up in a very strange family where I could feel, I guess I had, it turns out I've learned, I have high intuition and high feeling. And I could feel that the energy was one way. I had a father who was very much directive, telling me what to do, judging, giving feedback on doing it right or doing it wrong, which is not a very friendly family uh, energy, if I could be very blunt. And Mm. um, it turns out that I found in my house when I was 11 years old, a scrapbook that explained why. And I, it, I found out that my father was a twin, which I, he never said anything about. So there was a lot of privacy about history in our family. Uh, he was a twin. His sister had water on the brain. And his job, according to his mother, my grandmother, was, um, I, didn't want girl, I didn't want boys, she said. I just wanted girls. And your job is to push the carriage of your sister. She only, she had water in the brain, so she only lived until she was five and a half. And my father became emotionally orphaned and became a stutterer at a very young age. And so he went through school stuttering, very smart, um, but, but not able to connect socially with people in a healthy way. And I discovered this at this young age. And I approached him and asked more, I wanted to learn more about what was going on. Because the photographs in the scrapbook were that he was the valedictorian of his class, which takes speaking the head of the debating team and the head of the drama team. Like, how could that be? Yeah. How could, how could that be that he was all those wonderful things? Right. And the the answer was, and this is what was so inspirational for me. The answer was he had a coach who believed in him 
and said, I want to help you be able to speak without stuttering. And she made him the lead of a play. And when he was in that role, his body became, it found a different identity in his brain, a different place in his brain that owned an identity that he wanted so bad that he was able to hold that identity and be it as he moved forward. In other words, speak without stuttering became possible for him. And I went to medical books in our house. I, I just said, I've got to learn about this. I've got to figure out what, what enabled him to be able to recover a completely better identity for him. He became um, ambassador to the United States. He brought dentistry around the world. He did all sorts of amazing things. He ended up with hundreds of awards. And that one person, that coach, helped him step out of an identity and into a new one. And that's a piece of what coaching is all about. It's a piece of what consulting is all about when it comes to transforming companies. And so I said, this is what I have to do with my life. I have to learn about this. And that's how Benchmark Communications, Benchmark is a standard of excellence, how that became the name of my company. And the day I changed my company from Judith Glazer and Associates to Benchmark and got fancy, beautiful stationery, my life changed because everybody that I was talking to, all the companies wanted to understand how to bring that into their world and into their companies and into their leadership. Uh, that's a, such a great story. And uh, there's a p point that I think could be really easy to, to, gla to glance over, but I, I want to talk specifically about it. You, so you discovered that this scrapbook and it had yep. all these kind of answers to it, or at least posed a lot more questions. Mm -hmm. And then you went and you uh, confronted or, or approached your, your father about it. Mm -hmm. Where did that impetus come from? Where did that kind of courage, that approach come from to be that direct? And and I'll just, a little bit of maybe background why I'm asking is, sure. um, I think it says something about you that you had enough fortitude to just go and say, hey, I discovered this. When I think a lot of other people would um, maybe be afraid, fearful of doing that. They wouldn't be comfortable approaching it. And my wife and I have had this conversation because both of us came from uh, split families and I talked thoroughly with my parents about what happened and I confronted them about it and I had many lengthy conversations and my wife didn't. She, she said, you know, it wasn't just, it just wasn't the way we were. Like we didn't have those conversations and that wasn't really how my family was either, but I kind of forced those conversations because I felt like I deserved to have answers. I'm just curious what it was about you that enabled you to do that. So that's such a great question, and nobody's ever asked it, but I'm going to give you the answer that is exciting for me to share. Um, in, in school, in elementary school, I had a teacher, Miss Ciotti. I remember her name. I remember that she wore her Marine outfit once a month when she was going to the Marines. And yeah. I, most of, <laughs> I most of all remember that she designed a classroom experience that no other teacher that I had ever had before and after did, and I so loved her that she gave me courage to, because now I knew what I wanted to create in the world. But without that model, I don't know if I would have had the strength to know it's possible to change something as dramatic, for example, as how a teacher teaches. All the other teachers taught at people. And I didn't like the teaching at experience. In fact, I had teachers fired. I was such, such a bold, brassy kid. I mean, I literally went into the principal and said, this teacher is talking at us and not encouraging us to think. And they fired her. So wow. not my teacher, not, not, but, but Miss Ciotti was the opposite. And she put us in groups and we worked as peer coaches and nobody did it back then. 
and she gave us challenges to work on together for us to present our results to the classes and create conversation. So I brought Miss Ciotti home. And when I saw her talk with my parents and see how she was able to influence them, I said, life is bigger than people talking at each other. And I said, I remember standing in my, my house with one hand, my left hand going to the left and saying, I don't want this kind of world anymore. And then when my hand went to the right, it went up really high. And it was, I want to be part of creating this world. And so it's a confluence of finding somebody who represented the behavior. And I brought her home. My parents saw her, talked to her. And I said, this is it. There's at least one other person in this world who has this belief system. And it's not common. It's very unusual. But I know it's going to be better for all of us. So I used to run away a lot from my family when the conversations were really horrible. And I saw then other models down the street of people doing it better, where people loved each other. And with my high intuition and my high feeling, I felt the difference. And I said, I have to, I was very scientific. My whole family was very scientific. I said, I have to scientifically study this and figure out what are the patterns that are, that are taking place when it feels so good. And what are the patterns when it feels so bad? And how does this become something that is going to help us evolve as a humanity, as, as a global group of people who need to learn how to work together? War no more was always in my head. And what's the alternative is what I wanted to explore. Wow. I, that, that question that you ended on, what's the alternative is a, a really powerful question. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, a lot of my work is around strategic thinking and it's all about exploring alternatives about not just taking this kind of simple, easy choice that's right in front of you. And, uh-huh. you know, you and I both do work in emotional intelligence and, and working with emotions. And one of the things that I highlight for people that I work with, and I imagine you do something very similar is to highlight how a lot of times emotion drives these very short term, obvious decisions. So, you know, my, my pride gets hurt. And so emotion drives this decision or this choice to protect my pride or to make somebody else feel bad or, but they're all these like really short term, obvious choices that anybody could find, but it's exploring the alternatives where you really free up and enable the power behind emotion. And it sounds like at a young age, you were able to do that to explore what alternative scenarios would look like and what role you could play in that scenario. Right. And I think that that's a a really powerful place to be, to have that recognition and acknowledgement that you actually do play a role in that alternative scenario, no matter what your age is. And something Mm -hmm. that I feel like is a theme that I'm hearing already in talking with you is this idea of having people believe in you, uh, being able to believe in yourself. And I'm wondering what kind of science or information have you uh, have you found or discovered around that concept of uh, the power of believing in other people and having somebody believe in you? I'm, I'm going to give you another story. I want to fast forward into a story that actually explains exactly what you talked about. So um, it turns out that I was different from most kids. My parents just kept saying, why don't you become a teacher? And I said, I want to become a doctor. And they said, but that takes a long time and you won't have fun in the summer, you know, all that kind of stereotype things. And so I I had my head set on going a different path. And my father knew I was different. Um, And two things happened. One is one of his patients 
uh, Doreen Stegg came in to get her teeth done. And my father found out more about her. And he said, um, my daughter's home from school. Would you mind talking to her? And uh, Doreen said, no, I'd love to talk to her. And so I got a call from my dad in the house and our dental office was right next door. Come over and I want to introduce you to somebody. So I met Doreen Stegg. Doreen Stegg was now the head of the Human Behavior and Development Department at Drexel. She was actually looking for someone to become her protege. And when she heard about my background, I had been in, I was studying or, uh, anthropology. I was an organizational anthropologist. I went on archaeological digs with 6,000-year-old Neolithic sites. I was so different than the typical female, first of all, or student in school because I was studying interdisciplinary studies and nobody else was doing that at, at that time when I was at, at, right before I went to Drexel, I was at Temple. And she just fell in love with everything that she found out about me. And in 20 minutes, she said, I want to give you a fellowship to study with me. Would you be interested? And of course, I felt wow. like I had fallen into nirvana and exactly what I needed. And my father helped in spite of the fact that he was so weird in the family and didn't understand me. He did get this part of me. So there I got my father's support for the first time. And then I went in and took this fellowship. And as I worked with her more and more, my mind exploded. I could feel the difference because all the things that I was studying, I was studying on my own entropy and enthalpy and energy fields and how the brain works and all that neuroscience. And she just, she loved it so much as part of my fellowship. She sent me to Harvard and I got you know, courses that are credits towards my uh, fellowship. She sent me to Penn. All the things I wanted to do, she gave me a way to do. And so here's the, the, the coup. Here's where, where something really amazing happened. Uh, my mind exploded. She even said at the age, I was 24 then, she said, uh, would you like to write a book with me? And I said, you're on. I mean, it was that big in my life. And um, so what happened is my mind literally went on to another plane. And I started to pick up energy and insights and things. And words came to me, for example, that was the enthalpy word and the um, other words that I didn't even know about that popped into my brain. Like somebody was feeding my brain, telling me, keep going, you're on the right track. And my father thought I was schizophrenic. He didn't understand what my mind was doing. I would stay up late and talk to my best friend who loved talking to me about this and encouraged me to keep studying and my father sent me to a psychiatrist. And at that meeting with the psychiatrist, he basically said, um, you know, after you did a little Rorschach test, he said, you're sounding really funny and you sound schizophrenic. If you are schizophrenic, I have to institutionalize you. If you're not, you have to stop talking like that. And in my mind, I made a decision. I have to stop talking like that to my family. I have to keep talking like that to Dr. Stegg and see where this is going. And it only got better and better and better. And my intuition got stronger. And I ended up doing what she thought was the best fellowship she'd ever seen. We went on to study it for 10 years beyond my, my research to find out that we had discovered the ability to influence young children to elevate their IQ in the way that we interacted with them. And my studies of push and pull energy became real. It wasn't a fantasy. It wasn't craziness. It was things that people weren't seeing yet, but my mind and my body was experiencing. And she gave me the chance to study it, not only during my program with her, but for 10 years after she had her graduate students studying what we were discovering about push and pull energy.
Wow. That's really incredible. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, for somebody who's listening to this and they hear this story and these experiences, um, one of the things that I, I sometimes, one of the questions that I sometimes get, or, or maybe it's an objection from people is, mm-hmm. well, I'll never have that kind of experience. I'll never be given, you know, this incredible fellowship, this opportunity to really learn or thrive, uh, within that kind of powerful environment. What suggestion do you have for somebody who may not be given that experience, may not have, you know, somebody walk into their home and offer them a fellowship and, and be able to, you know, study at these phenomenal places and, and be tutored by a great mind. What, well, I guess there's two questions here. First off, what piece, what role did you play in making that happen? And second, what advice can we give somebody else who is hoping for something like that? So um, how, how open? I've never shared what I want to share with you and your audience, but are you open for something that is that unique or that, what would you call private? Let's hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So as I was trying to figure out my own identity in the world and I got all this strange pushback from my parents, basically saying, why don't you just, you know, dress nice, sound nice, go to school, be a sweet kid, and then take off in the summers and enjoy, you know, whatever. And it was so not me. So I had an identity crisis with my family. It took me into experimenting with weight loss uh, drugs because they are also amphetamines and give you a high. Mm-hmm. And my, my uncle owned a drugstore and I would go in after school and sneak in the back and take, take capsules. And then I was on capsules um, so that I was literally putting myself on drugs. And I was um, doing things like that that were very unkind to my body because I felt so alone in knowing who I was. Like people say, oh, I'll never do this or never do that. You know, I had this confluence of I want to do things that are different, but I don't know if I can ever do it. You know, so so I went through that horrible period and uh, I became a, um, a CTI in camp, a whatever they call them in training, CIT, a, a coach in training or something, a camp teacher in training. And I took my drugs with me and then I titrated myself off of them. And I said, this is not, I have a choice. Do I want to die or do I want to live? And I may not be achieving now what I want, but what could I live with? What could I live with? Not what could I die with, but what could I live with? And I started to change the way I talked to myself so that I gave myself energy to, to get myself off the drugs and start to say, you know, and I kept a journal what is it that I really want? I had little journals that I was now building to get to know myself because I really didn't know myself except through the judgment of parents who didn't get me. And what gave me hope was starting to put down my aspirations. What would I love? If, if, if I was given the opportunity to live for a long time, what kind of things would I want to be doing more of? And how do I make that happen? So I changed my whole way of languaging what I was going through. And I didn't have a coach for this. This is just my own way of saying I have more energy to live than I thought. I even tried to uh, slight, slip my wrists. You know, wow. all the things that, that you hear about what kids do or what people do when they're ready to give up. And I said, could I live with myself having given up? Look what kind of family I came from. I mean, my dad actually did do amazing things. And he had been a stutterer. So I kind of reflected on my life, became very into that and say, this is going to give me courage. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't live. Oh, I know. 
my parents had a party when I was 16. And it's the first time I had a drink of alcohol. And I got a little tippy. And I saw in my dining room, there was a woman who was sitting there crying, one of my parents' friends. And I walked over to her and I said, what's wrong? And she said, it's over. And I said, what do you mean it's over? She said, my life is over. I said, what are you talking about? How old are you? She said, 40. I said, oh my God, you have a whole life ahead of you. She said, no, it's over. Every dream I've ever had is done and I can't see what the future is. And I, I didn't even know what to do with that. I didn't tell my parents, maybe I should have, because three days later she hung herself in her house. Oh, wow. And I had that, yeah, so I had that picture in my head as I don't want to go there. That's not a solution to being you know, disappointed in your life. And so I guess all of these things coming together, if this makes sense, gave me a chance to take one more step forward and say, no, I have to figure this out. I'm, I'm worth more. And I started to have a really good feeling about my intuition. And, and then I met Dr. Stegg. So it's like once I committed to working on myself and things opened up and I found the right people to help me. Yeah. Wow. It, you know, you said a couple of really profound things in there, but one that really stuck out to me, and I'm going to rephrase it just a little bit, but you said, I didn't know myself except through others. Basically, you okay. said, you know, the only way that I knew myself was through how other people saw me. Uh-huh. And you've recognized that. You recognize that there was another level of getting to know yourself outside of just what other people saw or how Mm -hmm. other people perceived you and to take the time and the energy and the effort to really get to know yourself on a personal level uh, outside of just how other people see you. I think that's Mm -hmm. a a huge step forward that so few people actually take the time to get to know themselves on their Mm -hmm. own outside of how other people see them. And the fact that you did that at a young age and were able to do that um, and take the time and the energy and, and learn about who you were is, is such a big step forward. And one of the reasons that I think it's so critical is that anytime we face situations in life, whether it's an emotional experience, a conversation with somebody else, a really you know difficult time in our lives, something uncertain or unexpected there's going to be this huge amount of uncertainty within that situation. But one of the things we can do in those situations is bring our own certainty to it. We can bring things that we are certain about. We can bring priorities and values and purpose and those kind of things. But we can't do that if we haven't really gotten to know ourselves and understand what our values, our priorities, our purpose is. It's impossible to bring that to a situation if we haven't taken the time to really dive in and get to know those pieces of ourselves. And so, go yeah, yeah, go ahead. I have some comments about that because, um, yes, self-reflection and getting to know yourself is really important. So one side of it is how do you deal with your own brain and the things that you think about. And I really thought that the journaling was very helpful for me because I got to write things down as they came into my head at that moment. And sometimes those things disappear. Like your aspirations can come in for a, they can, I call it like a bird flies across your brain and you get a sense that there's something there. But then if you don't write it down, sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't appear easily again, because all of the cortisol that is floating around in your body and your mind closes down the part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex and the heart connection, where it, that's where so much of this great stuff lives. And 
you know, you, you block it by, by not capturing it when it's present and then developing it. So that's number one. Number two, um, I, I really, really, really believe that um, another example of what helped me so much was I haven't had an aunt, Aunt Blanche, and she ran the Girl Scouts. And she looked at me and she said, wow, you have so much talent. This is what she said in her mind. So she said, come and join us in our Girl Scout group. So I, every day when I was young, before some of the stories I told you, I went on a bus and went over to her house and joined other girls who are Girl Scouts. So it's finding identity in a group of people who love you or who are, have common interests. So finding that was so enormously helpful because I ended up becoming Curve Bar, which is the highest Girl Scout honor you can get. I, I had so many awards on my sash that there wasn't room for any more awards. So she helped me discover all of the interests that I had and validated them. Every time I got a, another bar, I was, I was learning who I was. So I didn't do it on my own. I really did find someone who was a reflection, who helped me discover me. And so I, I want to make sure that your listeners understand loneliness is not healthy and not good. And you can go into your head and try to figure it out. And there is a lot of good work I'm sure we can be doing in that respect. However, not without finding people who can help us discover and reflect back the biggerness that even we don't see in ourselves because we don't know how to see it. It's been blocked by the cortisol or blocked by bared parental experiences or something. So we need others yes. to help us, right? Yes. Well, yeah, absolutely. So thank you for clarifying that. And, and to your mm -hmm. point about writing things down, uh, there is this power in writing something down that takes it from being this kind of uh, ethereal, this, this philosophical concept to something that's now tangible and, and meaningful and real. And so I, I want to reiterate that. Yes, like there's so much power in actually writing these things down that makes them real and tangible. And mm -hmm. to your point about, you know, finding people that, that reflect um, not just who you are, but who you want to be and that help you get out of that space where you feel lonely. I tell businesses, small businesses and individuals all of the time, there are over, you know, 7 billion people on the planet. No matter how crazy or weird or strange you think you are, there's a group of people out there that's just like you that that share in that that mentality, that share in that concept, that need your product or service. That and so yes, you know, being able to find a group of people and and help grow and build a group of people that help you be who you really really want to be is is key. I'm wondering. How do you balance that then, being able to find this group of people uh, or nurture a group of people who help you be who you want to be, while also not basing your whole perception on uh, how other people see you? Does that question, does that make sense? That, that how do you create that balance? Um, that's a great question. And I don't know if I have a conscious um, answer to that. Um, I, what I started to do is, is keep track of what type of beingness made me feel really good and what made me feel not good. So if I felt judged by people or people didn't appreciate, um, well, here, let me, this is very funny. I had a professor in high school named Professor Llewellyn, 
and he would spell his name L-W-E-L-L-Y-N because it was rhythmic. And he wanted us to get into the rhythm of language. And one day he was asking a question and I answered the question and he said, can you stay after school? And I thought, oh my God, you know, what did I do? I blew it. And I stayed after school and he said, he said, this is really fascinating. He said, you've been in my class for seven months or five months or whatever it is. He said, I've never heard you talk the way you talked then. Then I said, what do you mean? He said, you came up with such brilliant insights and ideas. And I never heard that coming from you before. I want you to think about what might be stopping you from bringing that side of you out. Because all I saw was a girl who came with beautiful clothes and everything was matched. And I thought that that was what was most important to you. I couldn't see inside of you until you answered that question. And it's those kind of moments. Look how much I remembered it. I remembered his name that we have to hopefully believe in ourselves enough to, to send energy that we want to connect with people for our deeper identity. And I think, you know, we're not taught that in school. We're taught be smart, you know, no, 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 know a lot, get your A's and go on and then tell everybody how much, you know, and the work, we have to create a movement, which is what I'm doing with conversational intelligence. It's not emotional intelligence. It's conversational intelligence. And I finally found a way to describe this intelligence different from others. And I think we're at the apex of a, opening up a whole new reality for people as we bring this into schools and bring it into other places, education, government, where we're doing it around the world. We have 75 countries we work in. I've had 3,500 people study with me and I'm seeing the fruit of their understanding of this. So it's hanging in long enough to find our crowd and finding people that are willing to, that are playing in the same sandbox. Hmm. I'm not saying it isn't, it's easy. It's not easy. Finding those people takes a while, but once you start to do that, the, your chemistry, my chemistry, as people that are bringing like your ideas out into the world, when you start to find more of those people, it reinforces that you're not alone, that it makes sense and it is different and people have to be willing to live in that difference to learn how much better it can be with this new strategy and new philosophy. Well, let's, let's jump into that. I'm curious to get into, so you mentioned that conversational intelligence is not emotional intelligence. Explain that to me a little bit. Okay. So I wrote a dictionary for random house in 1984, took two years to do it. They hired, um, they hired me and another consultant to come up with 3,500 new business terms that were not in the dictionary. What a thing to start my early career with. I was 30 or something then, and it was a fascinating pursuit. I had to bring in uh, high-level students, master's degree students that I gave different categories, and we looked at everything where we could find new words that weren't in the dictionary but were in the world being used. And so that's when I was able to add some of my own words, like co-creating was not in the dictionary before. And that was one of the 3,500 words. So I was able to bring in things that people never used before, in addition to words that were being used in different categories. And um, that, that was like a groundbreaking way of, for me, looking at the, the power. I started to study the power of words, where words come from, how words are created. And I learned from that and then my consulting work as well. If there is not a word for something that exists and you introduce that word, you bring that word into a team or a culture, all of a sudden 
it could alter their whole sense of reality. One word, one new concept can literally have that dramatic effect on changing people's way of thinking about and philosophy and in your world strategies about what they're trying to do and how they're trying to do it. So the word that was most prominent was co collaboration back then. And collaboration came from the war, cohorting with the enemy. And I said, I want to give people a new aspiration that's bigger than uh, collaboration. And so I created a dashboard that had at one side protect, which represented the lower part of the brain's behavior. And then it moved all the way over on the right side to co-creating. And I wanted to make that be a whole new set of dimensions. So it's all, what's the difference between emotional intelligence and this? I focus on language, the way language impacts the brain, how to expand our capacity to hold new concepts and thinking, like how do we get into, how do we bring quantum physics into everyday life? That was a challenge that I've been addressing. So it's to have people understand the power of one word. So if I talk to you and I say to you, you're really cheap or you're really something, you know, you're really stupid. That one word could make, could make us enemies for life if we didn't know how to recover from that. And that might've been a moment of emotional outburst. So I'm studying those, the impact of words on our life, on our relationships, on our brain, and realize that we're only at the beginning of looking at how this works because now we can see inside the brain and see what happens when we're going through different types of thinking exercises to put go from putting words or feelings into words so that we can communicate with each other about the most unusual things that are going on for us as human beings right now as we evolve into our next level of greatness. That's really fascinating. One of the things that made me think of two things. First off, a lot of times when I'm working with organizations, uh, I'll repeat this statement that words matter. Um, uh -huh. and we'll take, we'll actually pause our, our session, our working session or the work we're doing to write out a common definition for words, because a lot of times you'll have 10 people in a room and we assume that when we use a specific word in, in the business context, it might be something like effective or efficient. Um, and we assume that we're, we all interpret that the same way that all 10 of us think of efficiency in the same way. And yet what we found when I don't do that is that we get out of the room and people were interpreting the word or hearing the word differently. Some of them in really positive, meaningful ways and some of them in negative, uh, potentially destructive ways. And so we've gotten into the habit where when these words are used, we actually pause and, and we'll define the term for everybody so that we have a common, like together we define it. So we have a common understanding and definition for that word. Mm -hmm. And then when we use that word in the future, we always accompany it with the way that we defined it so that other people hearing it have at least a chance to interpret it the same way that we used it with the same kind of context. So mm -hmm. I, I've seen the power to your point, I've seen the power of words and language um, in work and effective work together and being able to drive forward things as well as how it can prevent or create barriers to successful outcomes. And then this is totally a little bit random, but as you were talking, the other thing I thought about is how 
how language is shifting and changing and how with technology we're using more and more abbreviations and we're using more and more uh, emojis and emoticons and uh, you know these these gifs and memes and I, I was just thinking i was wondering as you were speaking how all of that now plays into this idea of conversational intelligence with new forms of you know lang- not necessarily new but different forms of language kind of arising and becoming more and more prominent Okay, I have to answer what you just said and also what you said before that. So I don't want to let either of those go. So first, let me say that every two years, we double the uh, words in our language. So we are at that time. Again, I'm an organizational anthropologist. So I studied history of like 6,000 years ago, what people were like up to where we are now. And language is the most important and conversational intelligence, I believe, is the next step beyond emotional intelligence to alert us to the power of words. And we all need to understand that. And the exercise you did is an exercise we do when we teach leaders some of the uh, principles of conver- the methodology of conversational intelligence, which is to stop, take a word, and what we call double clicking is one of our conversational essentials. So if people want to understand a little bit more about what CIQ, that's the shorthand for conversational intelligence is, it's bringing into, grafting into our life things that behaviors, conversational behaviors that will enable us to not get trapped in going up the ladder of conclusions with each other and thinking we're on the same page when we're not, but actually bringing us onto the same page so that we can see the same reality together. If we see that word, that word needs to be something that we all see the same way. Otherwise, we end up in cacophony. We end up in conflict. And we all see that. But we often haven't been able to diagnose why or where that came from. And so we try to create exercises, um, conversational intelligence exercises that help us stop, learn in the moment how we connect, how deeply we don't connect and what to do about it, and just make that everyday life. We have to. If every two years we double our uh, our language with each other, it's like all of a sudden integrating Spanish into English or Czech into English and not being able to talk and missing a lot of what people are really intending to say to each other. And that's when we lose it. That's when we get into conflict. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. Mm. Yep. So... Yeah, that's... You were, stepping, you, were, you were stepping into a practice because it was working when you did it. And that's what we've been spending 30, 40 years discovering or what are the methodologies to help people so that we don't walk away from each other in a conversation feeling pissed off. Right. You know, we start to find where our heart is and right. where our, our mind is. Right? So right. That's, wow. that's core. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. I love the work you're doing. I'm curious, uh, and this you. is a, a little bit of a, uh, odd segue, but I really want to get to this while we still have a little bit of time. <clears throat> I, I would love to hear about how this conversational intelligence and your work in this space impacted one of your biggest trials or difficulties that you experienced. So is there a, a kind of key trial or experience that you went through that you were able to apply these things, these principles to? And can you speak to what that experience was like and how they helped? Um, I'm going to tell you whatever the first thing was that came up rather than trying to sort through a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm using my gut now as, as a guide. Please do. Um, 
So when I started out again, I was still alone trying to get people to see this is not emotional intelligence, it's conversational intelligence. That was one of the barriers. And this work is different and can make, it actually hits the energetic level of human beings connecting with other human beings. So I had all of this language that I was putting into the world. And uh, I think the key, which you're helping me see, by the way, through this interview is, I seem to always have an angel, a person who believed in me at a certain time that enabled me to take this work forward and not give up on it. And I think that that's an amazing phenomenon about how the universe works. But anyway, um, so I, I did a lot of work. I got hired by Donna Karen. Donna Karen, the designer, um, okay. interviewed me, right? Interviewed me to work with her. And I went to my interview and there were 30 people in the room wearing black. And I didn't know, I hadn't done my research and I didn't know that um, black was the color. And I had gone out and bought some beautiful clothes, but they weren't black. And I walked in this room and I looked down and I said, uh-oh, I'm out of here. You know, what's going to happen? But anyway, they interviewed me and fortunately asked the right questions to find out what I was thinking about and how I could help Donna at the time grow. And so we sorted that out. And I became her consultant for two and a half years, sitting next to her, guiding her and helping her 13th president uh, of each one of the different divisions move forward. Wow. And so that, that was an amazing experience. And one of the people in her company was Mary Wong. Mary Wong was working in DKNY, but she wasn't the president at the time. And because she wasn't the president and coach came along and gave her an opportunity to go to coach, she took it so that she could be the head of coach, which was the CEO of coach, which was an amazing thing for her. Yeah. It really elevated her. Right. Well, she loved the work that I was doing with Donna Karen. And so she brought me into coach and the people at coach said, oh, we don't want to bring in a new consultant because they, they're different. We have somebody that's good and blah, blah, blah. And Mary said, no, I really want to try this session with Judith and then see what happens. And if you like it, fine. If you don't like it, fine. But I, I don't want to miss having you experience something different. So she took the bold step as a, as a someone who believed in me, like my aunt or like, the, you know, Missiati, and gave me a chance to come into coach. Well, 10 years later, uh, and by the way, when I came in, coach was 250 million. 10 years or seven years later, coach became a $4.9 billion company. Yeah, so wow. far beyond anything that I could ever envision. But they gave me a chance to work with every single president, every single head of every division. People knew me in the company like I was part of the, you know, the, the, the skin. And it gave me a chance to exercise and experiment with all the things that I was learning. It was one of my, the harvesting times of my life. And a couple of companies did that. Donna Karen was one. Coach was another. Um, Citibank, um, Chase. So it went from fashion to finance, my two big F bookends. Okay. And, and that's how, you know, when people start to trust you to, to experiment and, and have backup strategies, if it doesn't work and are comfortable with that, there's nothing more beautiful than that in a relationship. And so I started to define what healthy relationships looks like through the clients that enabled me to discover that with them. That's wonderful. So, yeah. Yeah. So how long, really wonderful. how long was that, that whole experience of being able to work with so many different leaders and be such a big part of that growth phase? Well, it, I, you know, that's still what I do. So I haven't stopped doing that. How, however, during that time I had people like Steve Sadov, um, who was, uh, he was the CEO at the time. And, um, 
it's just people that were absolutely off the charts. I would, I mean, it's still happening. How long did that go on? 20 years, 30 years. You know, it's finding people that want to take a chance and see that and believe and hear what I say and say, oh my God, we're missing that. You know, and now I have the science behind it. So they say, you know, this isn't the soft stuff. It's learning what, how I can present this work to people so that they get over it's touchy feely. That's not what this is about. Maybe it makes you feel good. And if that makes you feel touchy feely, that's great. But this work is scientific. So I don't know how long it's, it's been my whole life's, my whole life's journey, you know. Well, where do you see it going from here? What's the future look like for uh, Judith Glazer? Um, I'm now tackling, I now have more people working with me who've studied with me who have the same ambition that I do. Some want to bring it into education. Some want to bring it into business, government, and so forth. And so what I'm doing is building people that can go in and do this work with teams and organizations, with divisions, uh, to take on, like what I learned to do, something bigger than what you thought possible and enable transformation to take place in such an incredible way. People come away feeling enlightened rather than judged. And it activates, and I know, based on epigenetics and how that works, that we are creating an ability for people to learn how to turn on or turn off certain genes in their minds and in their bodies. And that's a piece of this. And once we do that, we can have mastery over creating ourselves as a, the being that makes a difference. We're not teaching people. We're not training people. We're activating parts of people's bodies, our own and others, in ways that enable us to bring out our humanity with each other. I mean, I have this picture that there's so many countries that have things to give other countries. And instead of going into fights and putting out rockets and trying to destroy other people's potential, we, in the, we work with people to learn what they need and see how we can exchange and support and give each other something that makes them unique in what they're trying to do. That's a whole different philosophy, but I want to get into politics and I want to get into influencing how people right now, more than anything else right now, what can we do to change the mindset and, and bring out our humanity and the best that we can give each other. So that's what's ahead of me for me. <laughs> I love it. You're, you're doing some really amazing work. Uh, and I love what you're doing. I love the, the principles that you're teaching and, uh, what you're trying to build. If people want to, to dive into more of this conversational intelligence, if they want to be a bigger part of this, where can they find more information? How can they connect with you? How can they take that next step? Okay. Um, first of all, um, I have a book called conversational intelligence, which was written to help people go through step-by-step -step different things that they can learn about the brain and, um, and how do you apply it in everyday life and companies. And a lot of the stories are corporate because that's the world I've worked in, but I, they relate, people say that they relate to everyday life with others than more than corporate. So you can buy the book if you want to start out. The bigger piece of what I have to offer is I have a program, um, where people are signing up. Uh, it's the most biggest, um, response to a program in the history of coaching. And so people can go to ciqcoach.com if you want to dive in and work with me and become a student of this with me and with a bunch of other extraordinarily amazing human beings uh, who have signed up for our program. So ciqcoach.com. Um, you can also go to my websites. Um, we are always looking for companies who are interested in experimenting with this. 
And um, to reach me, there's two different ways. Um, info.creatingwe.com, I-N-F-O, at creatingwe.com. Or I'll even give people my, uh, my personal email so that you can write directly to me, which is uh, J-E Glazer at creatingwe.com. Um, so those are, those are how to reach me. There's um, a, a course if people want to study this. And then I have two websites where I have blogs and things that I posted or interviews. Fran Tarkington, for example, um, uh, you know who Fran Tarkington is, right? Yes. The famous, okay, I, I guess the world does. So that's, <laughs> that's good to know. Uh, he, he called me up to do an interview with me for 15 minutes. And after the first interview, he said, I'm doing an hour. Would you come back? And I came back for an hour. And then he said, um, I love what you're doing so much. Can, can I bring you to Atlanta and spend a day with you? And I'm going to videotape a conversation that we have. And on my website is my conversation with Fran Tarkington. So there's a lot of cool stuff on creatingwe.com, C-R-E-A-T-I-N-G-W-E.com, uh, or conversationalintelligence.com. So there's historical stuff that people can look at and companies I've talked with gates I spent a day with and all sorts of amazing companies. But truthfully, if people want to really get into this work and come study with me, I open the doors for you to do that because it, it's got to be life-changing for whatever business you're in. Even if you don't coach or don't consult, just applying it. I have clients of mine that came into our program because they just wanted to get it, get the language, get the new ideas and get it in their, in their skin, you know, under their skin. That's perfect. So there are, uh, there you go, audience, a whole bunch of avenues that you can connect with Judith and learn more about conversational intelligence and the work that her and her team are doing over there. Um, it sounds like there's mm -hmm. quite a few resources, articles and uh, interviews that you can dive into to learn even more. Judith, thank mm -hmm. you so much for joining us. If you had to leave the audience with one piece of advice before we close out, what would that one practical piece of advice be? Every human being was born with a special set of genes, even though we adopt something from our family or pull it forward from the historical nature of how genes work. We have a lot of that. But what's most important to know is that you have the ability to interact with people that have a positive impact on you. And we know the difference when it feels good and when it feels bad, because that will activate your gene set for what is possible for you to do. So don't give up on yourself if you run into some of the roadblocks blocks like I did, or you're not finding exactly what you want in life. Don't take your life like that woman did. What you need to do is find new and different people to interact with. And like somebody you sit on a plane and talk to and you go, wow, that's a great conversation. you know. And I never even knew that person before. Find ways to understand how to put yourself into a place where you can have healthy conversations, explore and experiment, become an experimenter, I call mentor of an experiment. Um, and don't give up on yourself because you were here for a reason and you need to discover that. Even if you do it later in life, like some people do, um, just go for it. Believe in yourself, find the people to help you and you'll just, your life will change dramatically and you'll live longer because it's healthy to do it this way. Perfect. Judith, thank you so much for joining us. Folks, thanks for joining Judith, Judith and I for this conversation. Hope you enjoyed and appreciated the insights that she offered. A lot of wonderful things around conversational intelligence and, and powerful insights to be able to apply to your own life. Thanks for joining this episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction, and we will catch you on the next episode.